Lord, we commit our dear brother Kapo to you and we pray for him. Lord, that the meditations of his heart and the sermon that he has prepared, would you anoint it, would you sanctify it for us, our ears and our obedience and our life, Lord. God, too, we pray we would submit to your word. We would not lean upon our own understanding, but instead we would acknowledge the truth and the wisdom of your word and we will obey. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you like sandwiches? My families are not so enthusiastic about them, but I'm, I'm quite game for sandwiches. I, I particularly like sandwiches from a place called Sedili Depot. Two weeks ago, we heard from Deacon Raj a message about Mark's sandwiches. What ingredients go into Mark's sandwich? Well, this is how it works. Mark tells story A, then midway through story A, he changes direction and tells story B before going back to conclude story A. So Mark's sandwich is really a literary device. Story B in the middle amplifies the lesson of story A. So for example, in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, you've heard from uh, Raj two weeks back, Jarius a well-known and influential temple VIP is called to have the same faith as that of an unglam, unknown, unnamed and unclean woman with the discharge of blood who quietly touches the edge of Jesus' garment in the simple belief that she might be cured of a chronic bleeding. And in the midst of the crowd, Jesus felt power flowing out from him and asked, who touched me? The woman came before him, kneeling and trembling, and Jesus very gently tells her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then Jesus goes on to tell Darius, Jarius, whose daughter had already died by that time, that he should likewise have the same simple, uncomplicated, maybe even naive faith as this unglam, unknown, unnamed, and previously unclean woman. It was a powerful lesson in childlike faith. Today we come to another sandwich. Let's look at a passage, Mark chapter 6. I don't have it on the screen. Please follow with me in the Bible. Mark chapter 6. Wonders of technology. A long time. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 onwards. Then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, 
no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Verse 21, finally the opportune time, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the, king, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Verse 27. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on the platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Verse 29. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Can you spot where's the filling and where's the two slices of bread in this sandwich? Where does story B begin and end and where does story A resume? Yep, quite straightforward. Goes a bit like this. Verse 6, Verse 7 to 13, there's this story about the missionary journey of the 12 where Jesus sends out the disciples. Verse 14 to 29, there's an interlude, a long interlude, the beheading of John the Baptist. And then in verse 30, just one verse, the 12 returns from the missionary journey and is being ministered to by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are parallels to this passage in Matthew and Luke. Matthew breaks up Mark's account into three parts. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, 5 to 15, and then chapter 14, verses 1 to 13, and Luke chapter 1, sorry, chapter 9, verses, sorry, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 30, follows Mark's sequence. But the 16 verses that describe John the Baptist's beheading is just cut to two verses in Luke that speak of Herod's anxiety over 
John the Baptist. And so each gospel writer has his own distinctive view about the material. And for the purpose of this story today, I will refer to both Mark and, and Matthew. Let's look at story A, the mission of the twelve. The preceding verses in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, tells us that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, although Nazareth was his hometown. And after his rejection, he goes about the other towns and villages of Galilee to teach. We are not told in Mark what he taught, but from other parts of the gospel, it is always, always about the kingdom of God, that God's reign, God's kingship, God's rule has started with his coming to earth, with Christ coming to earth, and that therefore men must repent and believe in him. At the same time, he sends out the 12 disciples as his ambassadors to the villages that he himself was traveling to. Maybe it's like a PAP politicians doing their constituency walkabout and the grassroots and party activists always going ahead to announce the minister's arrival except that they always outnumber you, as you can see from this photograph. The white outnumber the other colours. Matthew 10 has a much longer exposition of this first mission trip than Mark chapter 6. In fact, it was in Matthew 10 that the 12 disciples were first introduced and called apostles. And the word apostle means someone who is sent out. It means a delegate. It means a messenger, but with the full authority of the sender. And Jesus' instructions to the twelve, as Matthew 10, verses 5 to 6 tell us, was as follows. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Much later, when he ascended to heaven, Jesus says to the disciples, go into all the world. For now, Jesus says, go only to your fellow countrymen in Israel. Who are these, these men who went out as delegates, as messengers of Christ? You know, they were a motley bunch. Fishermen, tax collectors, some we don't even know their professions or background. Ordinary people, like you and I. But what set them apart was that they had been with Jesus. They heard his call, they dropped everything they had, their livelihood, their fishing nets, their tax collector's booth, and they followed the Lord. And to these ordinary people, Jesus gave them extraordinary powers to perform signs and wonders healing of the sick, casting out of demons. But Jesus also gave them strict instructions as to how to conduct themselves. They were not to have any unnecessary baggage or extra supplies, but depend wholly on God for their provisions during their mission trip. The apostles were to depend on the hospitality and the kindness of the villagers that they visited. And in those days, hospitality was a sacred duty. When a stranger enters a village, it was not the duty of the stranger to search for hospitality, but it was the duty of the village to offer hospitality. And Jesus told them that if hospitality was refused, if the doors were shut, they must shake off the dust 
that place, they must shake off the dust of that place from their feet when they left that village. And the law of the religious leaders in those days says that the dust of a Gentile country was unclean, it was defiled. So that when a man enters Palestine from another country, a heathen country, a pagan country, he must shake off every particle of dust of that unclean land. And so Jesus' instructions to his disciples signify that they were to treat these unwelcoming cities and villages as unclean, as pagan. A bit of explanation about the dress code in those days. Typical male Jew has five articles of clothing. There's an inner garment, top left. It's a long cloth folded over, sewn down on one side, long enough to reach the feet, and with holes cut in the top corners for the arms and the head. Then there's an outer garment, second one on the top right. This was the main article of dress and used as a cloak by day or a blanket by night. And then there's a girdle or the belt that is worn over the inner garment or the tunic. And the skirts of the tunic tunic could be hitched up under the girdle for work or when you run. And then there's a headpiece, bottom left. Piece of cotton or linen about a yard square, folded diagonally and placed on the head to protect the back of the neck, the cheekbones and the eyes from the heat and the glare of the Palestinian sun was held in place by a piece of elastic wool around the head. And finally, a pair of sandals, which usually comprises flat soles of leather, wood, or matted grass. Sometimes they would carry a traveler's bag, although here Jesus tells them no bag. And the bag would be made of young kid's skin with a strap and slung over the shoulder. And it was used to carry bread, raisins, olives, cheese, last the traveller a day or two. It was ordinary, unassuming, simple clothing, befitting the simplicity of the message that Jesus entrusted them to preach. Someone described all this as royal poverty, the manner of life that exemplifies and commends the message of the gospel. This morning, I sent my daughter here for uh, music because she was playing as part of the worship team. And uh, I'm quite casual and callous about my dressing. Um, I originally wore grey-coloured slacks and then a green shirt. So my wife looked at me and gave me a shelling and said that this is ridiculous. You know, you look terrible, sloppy. And my wife looked, my, my daughter looked at me and said, huh, green. So I changed. My manner must fit my message. Sometime in June 2011, my CG uh, went to Batam on a short mission trip. We visited a slum area. I, I can't quite recall. It's probably uh, Dapu 12 or one of those. We helped out on a Saturday afternoon with the feeding program with about 30 to 40 slum children. The picture was taken in that tiny wooden shed Last week, you heard Sarah share about what's happening in IBC and the work in Batam, and they have built a lot of uh, new structures. But this was back in 2011, so they didn't have all those nice buildings. Uh, this was just a wooden shack, a house in a slum area uh, where we did the feeding program. And you know, we, we had singing and games with the children. It was, it was very tiny. It was dirty, although they had a mat. 
It was very hot and humid, and all of us were drenched with sweat. The boy playing the game console is my son, Julian, who accompanied me on the trip. The slum children were crowding around him to see his little toy, his electronic toy. I was actually very reluctant to let him play the console when we were having the program with the slum kids, but I didn't have a choice because I could leave him in a hotel by himself, which was dangerous because he was only like five, you know, uh, very young at that time, six. Uh, so I, I had no choice but let him play the console. But you see, it's, it's totally incongruous. It's totally incongruous. The manner of his behavior didn't fit the message we were communicating. Of course, I don't blame him because he's a young, he's a young child. I'm glad we didn't bring an iPad. It could have been worse, right? The manner must fit the message. Jesus tells his disciples when he sent them out on this mission trip. Second story, story B. Story of John the Baptist's execution. You know, this, this episode of Herod and John the Baptist is the only passage in Mark that is not directly about Jesus. Who was John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was a herald whose job, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, was to prepare the way of the Lord. And he too, like the disciples, the twelve, was a messenger. Who was Herod? Well, he was the king of Judea at that time. Jesus and his disciples were having a fantastic ministry, preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. And as more and more stories about Jesus and what his disciples were doing reached the ears of Herod, speculation about Jesus grew. Some said that Jesus was Elijah, come back from the dead. Some said that he was one of the other ancient prophets. But Herod was convinced, as Mark chapter 6, verse 16 tells us, that Jesus was John the Baptist who came back to life. What was this all about? And the rest of the passage in Mark chapter 6 tells us what happened between these two characters, Herod and John. Herod, full name Herod Antipas, had in an abuse of his power imprisoned John who condemned the king for an illicit relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. And so this woman, Herodias, hated John and wanted to kill him. But Mark tells us that Herod feared John and protected him because he knew and trusted him to be righteous and holy man. But when Herodias' daughter, by the name of Salome, danced at Herod's birthday party and Herod offered her any reward, prompted by her mother Herodias, as you read just now, she went and asked for the head of John the Baptist. Let me provide some background to this episode. You know, there are actually many, many, many Herods. It's very complicated, so I prepared this diagram. Told you it's complicated. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great, that's the first Herod, was king of Judea. And he married many times. First, he married Doris. by whom he had a son, Antipater, whom he murdered. Then he married Mariam. Third column, a Hasmonean, by whom he had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, both of whom he also murdered. 
And the daughter of Aristobulus was Herodias, the woman in our present passage. Herod the Great then married another Mariam, fourth one, called Botheslian, I think, by whom he had another son named Herod Philip. Herod Philip married Herodias, the one that we mentioned earlier, who's the Herodias in the story, who was the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus, or in other words, his niece. And by Herodias, Herod Philip had a daughter called Salome. This was the girl who danced before Herod in our passage. Herod the Great then married Maltake, another one, last one, by whom he had two other sons, Archelaus and Herod Antipas. And this Herod Antipas is the Herod in our passage in Mark chapter 6. He was the ruler of Galilee during Jesus' time. Herod Philip, who first married Herodias, did not inherit any of Herod the Great's territory, the father. But he merely lived as a very wealthy private citizen in Rome. So when Herod Antipas, our Herod in the story, visited his half-brother Philip in Rome, he seduced his wife Herodias to leave Philip and marry him instead. So this was the illicit relationship that John the Baptist spoke against in our passage for which he paid the price and was imprisoned. Finally, story not over, Philip the Great married Cleopatra of Jerusalem. That's the first column. By whom he had a son named Philip the Tetrarch. This Philip married Salome, the girl in our story who danced before Herod Antipas. Looking at the family chart, this Salome was her husband Philip the Tetrarch's grandniece by his half-brother Aristobulus and his sister-in-law by his other half-brother, Herod Philip. Confused? So am I. Really messed up family. After story B ends, Herod, John the Baptist, how John the Baptist was murdered, Mark returns to story A but in only one verse, that the twelve reported back to Jesus all that happened during the mission trip. So let's get back to the sandwich. What's the connection between story A and story B? Story A is about the missionary journey of the disciples following in the footsteps of their master. And story B is about the beheading or the martyrdom I'll come back to the word again later, of Jesus' messenger, John the Baptist. The return of the twelve in verse 30 brings us back to story A right after the death of John the Baptist. And so this must mean that Mark, the writer of this gospel, saw a relationship between mission and martyrdom, between discipleship and death. John proclaimed Jesus before he came, and the disciples were to proclaim Jesus after he ascended to heaven. John dies for his witness to Jesus when he spoke out against Herod and Herodias. And the disciples were to be prepared for a similar fate. Like master, like servant. 
As John was the forerunner of Jesus' message and ministry, so too is he or was he the forerunner of his death. John was righteous and suffered silently, and the same will be true of Jesus. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus taught later in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If someone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. We all know that the cross was an instrument of death. Jesus addressed that word to his disciples. And Mark says the same thing. In sandwiching the story of the John the Baptist's death, mission of the twelve in that discipleship may lead to martyrdom. The disciples of Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John the Baptist. So John's martyrdom not only prefigured Jesus' death, it also prefigured the death of anyone who would follow Christ. What exactly is martyrdom? That's a very big word, right? Who is a martyr? You know, the Greek word for martyr simply means witness. To be a witness of something personally observed. In one of his last conversations before, his, before he ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yet the church, the church has always understood this verse, these words, as not just simply reserved to those who are physically present with the Lord. The first followers of Jesus called themselves witnesses to what they saw and learned while they were with Christ. But those who lived decades and centuries later recognized that they too were witnesses. They too were therefore martyrs. For many of the apostles and early Christians, being a witness meant that their own lives could be in danger at any time from rulers and authorities and enemies who considered them heretics, outcasts, dangerous, a threat to national security, who refused to bow down to pagan kings. If you read Acts, you will see that the very first Christian martyr was Stephen, the deacon. So our deacons and elders are at risk now. Many generations of early Christians bore witness to the point of death. So many, so many that the word martyr, witness, began to signify suffering and dying due to one faith's testimony. The church, both ancient and modern, is full of examples of martyrs. This is a drawing of uh, Polycarp, a guy called Polycarp, a bishop of a place called Smyrna, who is a place which is mentioned in Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches. One of the places mentioned is Smyrna. Today is known as Izmir, so the city on the west coast of Turkey. He was arrested when he was almost 80, 90 years old for refusing to burn incense to the emperor because of his faith in Christ. When he was put on trial and asked to renounce his faith and curse Christ, he replied with his famous words, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. Why then should I blaspheme my Lord and my King. And then they burned him to death. That was in AD 
156. Now it's 2015. Many of us have images of early Christian persecution. Believers meeting in remote houses with doors that are bolted tight. Some preaching boldly in public and then they get dragged off to prison. Others captured and paraded as spectacle to be crucified for sport by rulers like Emperor Nero. Such stories are familiar to us only through watching Bible epics or movies. And occasionally we read of Christians like Polycarp or famous Chinese believers like Wang Mingdao refusing to be a part of the communist government-sponsored three-self church and being imprisoned for almost 25 years. But otherwise, other than those things that we read about or see in movies, persecution for our faith is usually far from our thoughts. We've enjoyed freedom of religion here for so long. Nobody persecutes us. Yeah, sure, we read stories about misdeeds by some believers and church leaders who get into trouble. But otherwise, nobody Nobody needs to die for their faith. But actually, it's not what we think. Sometime in February this year, 21 Egyptian Coptic Christian migrant workers were kidnapped. ISIS released a video entitled, A Message Signed with Blood, Nation of the cross, showing how 21 Egyptian Christians dressed in orange overalls were paraded on a beach somewhere in the Mediterranean, made to kneel and then beheaded one by one till their blood flowed and turned the sea red. They were given the option to convert to Islam or die. All of them refused. They paid the ultimate price. Before they die, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, but while ISIS is a nightmare, you know what they have done in the recent days? When it comes to Christian persecution worldwide, the Islamic State is just the tip of the iceberg. Today's treatment of many Christians in many nations is not very different from the brutal persecution of the early followers of Christ. In North Korea, thousands of Christians and their families are imprisoned in labor camps, with up to 80 executed last year for possessing Bibles and similar transgressions, quote-unquote. In Sudan, hundreds of Christian women and girls are flogged annually for indecent dress, although what constitutes indecent dressing is not defined. Iranian soldiers raid church services and threaten believers, punishing Christians with prolonged detention, torture, and execution. In Pakistan, Christian women and girls experience violence daily. You read about some of that in the papers. Many targeted for rape, sexual abuse, and kidnapping. And a mob beat and burned to death a Christian couple last year for alleged blasphemy. In Saudi Arabia, not a single Christian church is allowed to exist country. What do we learn from Mark chapter 6 verses 7 to 30? If you forget everything that we've just said this morning, just remember four M's. Manner, message, martyrdom, mission. 
brothers and sisters, we are witnesses. And to be a witness is to be a martyr. It's the same word. As witnesses, our manner of life must command the message of the gospel. And as martyrs, we have a mission to proclaim the kingdom. And we must be prepared to pour out our lives even unto death. Not long ago, I was talking to someone who had just transferred his membership to PPH. He had served in a pastoral capacity in another church for many years. And when I asked him why he joined PPH, he said to me, you know, I spent the second third of my life pastoring people in my church. And I wanted very much to spend the last third of my life reaching those outside the church in the mission field. God willing. And after that, he said something to me to the effect that because PPH has a very established missions platform, we could, we, meaning PPH, could at least bring his body back if anything happened to him in the mission field. Something his previous church could not do. Probably couldn't do. You know, I was, I was stunned by that reply. I was stunned by what he said. Living as though he was ready to die. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we are called to do? Whether in the mission field where we might be persecuted and martyred for our faith or living quiet and peaceful lives here at home in Singapore, we are called to a life of obedience to the cross of Jesus Christ. When he was trying to rebut false teaching about the resurrection of the dead, some people were saying there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul puts this this way. And this is his argument. If there is no resurrection, as his opponents say, then his faith in Christ is futile, is useless. And his great suffering, and he suffered a lot. The Apostle Paul suffered a lot. His great suffering he experienced would have gone completely to waste. And then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 30 to 31, Why are we in danger every hour, Paul says? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. I die every day. Whether in the mission field or here in Singapore, I live by the cross, I die to self, I live for Christ. You know, I tried to get that ISIS video that showed the um, beheading of the Egyptian Coptic Christians. And I think it's been removed. There's some graphic stuff about it. Very graphic, very brutal. And then I managed to just find on the internet another video. It was a response by, I believe, some Christians. I don't know from where, maybe America. And it was entitled, A Message Signed with Blood. No, sorry. It was a response to the ISIS video, A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. And this other video is entitled, A Message to ISIS from the Nation of the Cross. And instead of a closing song, I'd just like to play that six-minute video for you. If I may have the next slide, please. And we will close after that.
strikes you on the right cheek. Offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, give him your cloak as well. Give to everyone who asks from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. Do not do to others anything you would not have them do to you. Pass no judgment, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Be perfect, just as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Ask for this gift, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. What father refuses his child? If you who are imperfect know how to give what is good to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him? 
Can I ask all of us to stand? Be close. Would you just do this with us, with, with me? Just in twos and threes, let's pray for one another. That's where you are. Jesus told his disciples that persecutions will come. And while we would like to think that it was intended for the early church, which it certainly was, I think you've seen from the examples here that I mentioned, and if you read the newspapers and you some read the Christian press, you will realize that persecutions remain with us today. So let's pray for one another that our faith will not fail when the testing comes. And even if the testing does not come in the form we've just witnessed, Perhaps, as I've heard from this friend in this church who told me, I'm willing to lay down my life in the mission field. And as Paul says, I die every day. So even if we are not led to serve God in the field, pray that each of us here will have the same attitude, the same spirit, of cross-bearing as the Lord himself told his disciples whoever would come after me must deny himself take up the cross and follow me pray, let's pray for one another and after a few minutes I will just close us in prayer so let's, let's just pray for each other on your right on your right Let's just close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the examples of men and women all through the centuries who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for your mercy and grace to us that you have spared us from the kind of persecution 
suffering that they have endured. Not for their own sins, but because they carry the name of Christ. Lord, we pray that we pray for protection and safety, that this persecution will not happen to us. But we also pray that if and when it is your will that it should come upon this country and upon the church here and upon each and every one of us or some of us, Lord, our faith, you will strengthen, you will grant that it will not fail, that we will confess Christ even in the face of death. And for all of us here who live comfortable lives, we do not know the meaning of death, the cross, Lord, help us to have the same spirit as the Apostle Paul, to know that we truly die every day and that we will submit to you, submit to your claims upon our lives. Lord, thank you that the cross, the symbol of suffering, is also the symbol of our salvation. And as we have celebrated in worship this morning, Jessica and, and Joanne have led us in time of singing and of rejoicing. Lord, we know that there is light, that in the midst of the darkness of this world around us, we want to lift up your name and to praise and honour you. We know that you are sovereign. And that one day, Lord, we will gather together with the millions upon the millions of people across the shore on the other side, rejoicing and praising you to all the, with all the saints that have gone before us. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being numbered among them. So help us in our faith each day. Teach us to submit to you. Teach us to carry our cross, die to self, and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you. The service is over.